Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the probability or the official probability, rather, of a December rate hike continues to diminish over the last several days. We had been about 70 percent probability. At least that's what the markets were assessing the odds. Now we're down to about 60 percent. Of course, personally, I think the odds are much closer to zero. And I think that over time, as we get closer and closer to that December meeting, the odds will steadily move down, just like, you know, the Atlanta Fed keeps moving down its estimates for Q3 GDP, most recently now down to 1.9%. I think we get another estimate or an update uh, later this week. I would again expect that the Atlanta Fed to move lower again. We've got more weak economic data out thus far this week that I will get to. But as the potential for a rate hike is diminishing. The appeal of gold is uh, improving. Gold prices now back above 1260, I think 1262 and change today. We've had a couple of back-to-back strong days in the gold sector. Maybe this most recent correction of this upward trend, which was basically the catalyst for it, was the renewed expectation of a November and now December rate hike. I think as those expectations are realistically dialed back, you're going to see more money moving into the metals. The dollar, though, continues uh, to trade firm. I mean, it's not really moving any higher, but it's not really surrendering much of its gains. Maybe some of this has to do with some of the weakness, particularly in the pound, which I think is very interesting. If you look at the weakness in the British pound, why is the pound so weak? Well, the Bank of England was very forthright uh, prior to that Brexit vote. Uh, they didn't hide their their forecast. They were warning everybody, hey, you better not vote for Brexit. Uh, Brexit will be a disaster for the British economy. And sure enough, the British voted for Brexit. And so now it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because the central bankers in Britain have convinced themselves that Brexit is bad for the British economy. And so as a result, they have announced increases in their QE program. They have cut interest rates because they feel they need to do something to brace for the impact of, of Brexit. But here's the irony. What's hurting the British economy is the reckless monetary policy of the Bank of England, because the Bank of England believes that Brexit is going to hurt the British economy. They are easing in advance of that, and that is undermining the value of the pound. And it's the weakness in the pound that I believe is the problem in the British economy right now, and the fact that inflation is going to be accelerating based on the weak pound as measured by consumer prices in the U.K., And so now they're going to have the economy weakening and they're going to have accelerating inflation. And this is not good news, but it's not because of Brexit. It's because of the central bank's reaction 
to Brexit and its false diagnosis of a a problem that doesn't exist and then a cure that's not going to work. You see, what the Bank of England should do is they say, oh, Brexit uh, could be a problem, so let's raise interest rates to defend the pound. Let's make sure the pound doesn't go down. The irony of it is the pound is falling, and now people can say, oh, you see, look, Brexit was a bad idea because the pound is falling. It's not Brexit that's hurting the pound. It's the Bank of England's reaction to Brexit. They've cut interest rates, anticipating a problem that may never materialize. Because what if Brexit is actually good for the UK? What if it's better for the British economy? So why are they cutting rates? But this is, you know, example of these central bankers lighting fires and then, you know, getting credit for putting them out. But back on our side of the pond, the diminishing prospects of a rate hike, which is still seen, you know, as a better than a coin toss, right? If it's 60 percent, that means people still think that it's more likely that the Fed will raise rates in December than not. But that is kind of propped up the stock market. The Dow Jones is still hanging out just north of 18,000, although bond yields have not really surrendered much of their gains on this diminished expectation. So that could be problematic for the U.S. when you have rising bond yields and um, weakness in the markets and rising inflation. You know, we got the official government measure of inflation today, uh, the CPI. It came out pretty much in lines with what the market had been expecting for September. The gain was 0.3% for the month. Of course, that's a monthly gain. You'd have to multiply it by 12 or whatever to get an annualized gain. 0.3 is is what they got. Uh, but this still represents an increase over the prior month, which was 0.2. And of course, beneath the surface, the headline numbers that were really driving the increase were rents and gasoline prices. And they were up sharply. And I believe that these year-over-year numbers are going to get even worse when it comes to uh, rents and particularly gasoline prices as oil prices continue uh, to move higher. If we're building this base now, oil continues to hang out above 50 and it doesn't really sell off. If we continue to move, remember, oil bottomed out at the beginning of this year. You had oil uh, close to $30 a barrel. I mean, if oil prices are closer to $60 a barrel by the beginning of next year, you pretty much have a doubling in the price of oil. That is going to really bleed through into gasoline prices and other energy prices that are going to make their way into the CPI. We're already starting to see other commodity prices really starting to pick up. So I think the weakness in the headline number, which was masking the strength in the core, you know, core CPI now has been rising on a year-over-year basis uh, at over 2% for close to a year now. I think that as you start to see these comparisons change, uh, you're going to get a much higher CPI, which the Fed has already prepared us for. I mentioned that in the last podcast where you have Janet Yellen talking about, you know, letting the economy run hot for a while. What that really means is that accommodating higher levels of inflation without having to, you know, raise interest rates because of inflation. Well, let's just let it run hot and somehow, well, maybe it's run cool for so long that we can heat it up a little bit or whatever the metaphor they're going to use. But what they're really doing is laying a foundation for accepting higher inflation. You know, just like that unemployment, they, you know, first they said six and a half percent. Well, now here we are at five and it's not a big deal. I think that two percent inflation, uh, you know, benchmark is going to be moved significantly upward, even if the Fed is reluctant to come right out and say it. uh, That is, in fact, ultimately what they're going to do. You know, the uh, Los Angeles Times did write an article Uh, about inflation, potentially calling into question whether or not the government 
official measure of the CPI is honest and accurate. And they did quote me, although I wish they had quoted me a lot more because I spent a lot of time with this reporter and he just used uh, one quote. But I really wish he would have written into the article more about the absurdity of the modern and modern meaning just the last few years belief in the benevolence of inflation, that inflation is a good thing, that inflation is necessary, that the central banks should strive to have a certain amount of inflation and that if we don't have enough inflation, it's a bad thing. That somehow uh, economies suffer if the cost of living doesn't rise uh, by at least 2%. I mean, if the cost of living is stable or if the cost of living goes down, these are supposedly very dangerous things that central banks should protect us from. That never made it into the article. Instead, it was more, you know, hey, is, you know, is there more inflation than, than the government acknowledges? And, of course, I did go into the fact that I believe that there is, that I believe that the CPI is an inaccurate measure uh, by design of inflation. And, of course, I read this some article, I guess Mother Jones, some guy wrote this article, critical of this uh, L.A. Times article uh, for giving people like me a forum uh, to spout our nonsense. In fact, they actually called me, I don't know, a moron or an imbecile. I forget the, the way he referred to me. <clears throat> but he basically said, you know, I'm just a nut, and I'm accusing the government of cooking the books. And no, I didn't. I specifically do not accuse the government of cooking the books. They don't have to cook the books. They wrote the books. I mean, when they are the ones that come up with the methodology for calculating the CPI, they don't have to fudge it once it's done. I mean, people try to create the impression that I believe that the government calculates the CPI and then they get a high number. And then they figure out ways to change it to make it low, right? They're actually fudging it. They're, they're not being honest. I never make that claim. What I say is that the way the CPI has been designed, the methodology, and they changed it significantly in the Boskin Commission, and they specifically said, we think inflation is being overstated by the CPI, and we're going to fix it so that it doesn't overstate it anymore. And I think they fixed it too good. They fixed it so the fix is in, and now it constantly understates inflation. Look, if I'm trying to measure the height of something, and I use a ruler, and the ruler is 11 inches, the, the height is going to be too tall. But that doesn't mean I'm fudging it. I mean, I'm measuring it accurately with this inaccurate ruler, and I'm getting a height that's too high. It's not a conspiracy. No one's fudging anything. The problem is the ruler is inaccurate. Well, who manufactured the rulers? See, that's what's going on. You know, my father did this uh, analogy of rulers and taxation in his book, The Kingdom of Malts. And, you know, if you if you haven't read The Kingdom of Malts, go on shiftbooks.com and order a copy. I autograph and we still have a few copies left. It is a great, great book. Uh, and, you know, my dad, I, I put up that video on Sunday. My father died a year ago on Sunday, and I put up a, a video of one of his last, his second, one of his, probably in the last month of his radio show that he used to do every week, uh, was on in, in uh, Las Vegas, and then it also was on shortwave radio. But I put up one of his uh, broadcasts. If you haven't listened to it, uh, check it out. It's up on my YouTube channel, Erwin Schiff Remembered. But that book... Uh, the Kingdom of Malts is a great read. You can read it in an hour. It's very cute. It's funny. You can Your kids can read it. But he uses this ruler analogy, and that made me think of it. But if the ruler is inaccurate, then the measurement is going to be wrong. In this case, if the ruler is too short, then whatever you're measuring is taller than it really is. And so that's what's going on with the CPI. The government's ruler is wrong. The government deliberately shortened, you know, shortchanged the ruler 
because they want the CPI to be low. And a perfect example of why they want it to be low was the government today announced the increase in Social Security COLAs for the year. And it was the smallest increase ever of just three-tenths of 1%. Now, last year, there was no increase at all. So technically, last increase, an increase of zero was the record, but that's not, that's not even an increase at all. So for any year that there was an increase, this year's increase was the smallest. Last year, there was no increase at all. So it, I guess it didn't count. But between the two years, you've got you know the increase of, you know, what, three-tenths of 1% over a two-year period. This is because it's indexed to what the government claims the inflation rate to be. Well, if the inflation rate were higher, then they would have to give bigger increases to Social Security. Now, if I'm right and inflation is actually much higher than the official measure, well, then the government is reducing Social Security benefits every year, which is something that has to be done. But it's something that nobody wants to vote for. And so by using an inaccurate measure of inflation so that when you adjust the Social Security payments for inflation, the adjustments are too small, you have effectively cut Social Security benefits, but nobody has to do the politically dangerous thing of voting to cut them, right? They're being cut, but nobody is voting to cut them. So everybody gets to save uh, that potential problem at the polls because senior citizens, a lot of them are one issue voters, right? This is the third rail of politics. Nobody wants to touch it or they're going to fry. So by underreporting inflation, you can cut Social Security benefits and nobody has to ha- has to get fried. No one has to touch it. You know, ironically, the government also announced today, I think about a 7.3 percent increase in the amount of your income that is subject to the, the Social Security tax. You know, now it's going to be one hundred and twenty seven thousand two hundred dollars of income that is subject to the tax. And that is the biggest jump ever in one year on the amount of of income subject to the tax. Now, apparently last year, they didn't increase it at all. And the reason was the law is written that you cannot increase that base amount unless there is an an increase in the COLA. And so since last year there was no increase in the COLA, they couldn't increase the taxes, which might be one of the reasons that they wanted to slip through a very modest increase this year so they can whack the higher income earners with a bigger increase, because now they get to catch up. So we had two-year increases backed into one year. So it was a 7.3% increase in the amount of income subject to tax. And, of course, there are politicians. Bernie Sanders wants all the income subject to tax. He doesn't want there to be a cap. He wants all of your income, uh, just like now with Medicare. You know, there used to be a cap on Medicare. Medicare had the same cap as Social Security, and they got rid of it. And so now you pay Medicare taxes on all of your income, not just the first 127200 I'm sure eventually those caps are going to go away on Social Security, and that's just going to dramatically increase the marginal income tax in the United States because the Social Security tax is, for all practical purposes, just another income tax. It's a wage tax, but it caps out on a certain amount of wages. But you know, eventually it's just going to go up, and it's just going to make America that much less competitive Uh, Tax-wise, you know, it's interesting. If you go back to the origin of the program, the initial tax, Social Security 1937, only $3,000 was subject to tax, the first $3,000 of income, and the rate was 2%. That was it. And, of course, you know, they, they lay the tax, the employer pays half, and the employee pays half. And the reason they did that 
is because the government is smart and they want the voters, in which case the employees, to think they're getting something for nothing. So they say, hey, you know, we're only going to make you pay for half. We're going to make the employer pay for half. Well, yeah, well, where does the employer get the money? From the employee. It's money that otherwise would have been paid to the employee in wages. Instead, it's sent to the government in, in Social Security taxes. See, if I'm an employer, it's I'm indifferent who I pay. If I have to pay you or I have to take some of your money and send it to the government instead, it's, you know, it's all coming out of my pocket. It doesn't matter whose pocket it goes into. So the worker is not getting something for nothing. The government is just getting him to believe that he's getting it because they think, oh, your employer is paying half. No, you're paying all of it. The employer is just paying it on your behalf. And so, you know, you don't actually see the tax. But at least the interesting thing was, the self-employed people, see, today, if you're self-employed, that doesn't fly because you pay both parts directly, right? you got to pay the employee half, and then you got to pay the employer half. So there's no uh, pretense that you're getting something for nothing if you're self-employed. And we have a lot of Americans today that are self-employed. They're independent contractors. You know, you're driving an Uber, right? You're paying both halves, right, directly. You're not paying the second half indirectly, so you know what you're doing. But when they first started Social Security, If you were self-employed, you are exempt. You didn't have to pay the tax. It only applied if you were an employee. So if you were self-employed, you did not have to pay any Social Security tax. And here's the reason. What the government said at the time was, remember, this was supposed to be a program to make sure that people didn't end up in retirement broke, right? And so the government thought, look, there are people that are not smart enough to save for their retirement. They're workers. They have a job. You know, we don't think they're smart enough to set money aside. Or maybe they do set money aside, but then they end up losing it. Some tragedy happens. And so this is going to be some just in case we're going to protect workers with the Social Security. But even Roosevelt believed that if a guy was smart enough to run his own business, he was self-employed. So he ran a business. Well, you know, obviously that guy's smart enough to save for his retirement so the government doesn't have to do it for him. It was only the, the working class, right, the uneducated, the, the laborer who toiled for a, a wages, for a paycheck. The government thought that person is not smart enough or responsible enough to save for their own retirement. But if you're self-employed, we figure, you know, you got it covered so the government's not going to do it for you. And, of course, later on, when this Social Security chain letter was running out of chain and they were trying they were desperate to try to find new sources of revenue, they decided to tax the self-employed people. But it's interesting, the origin of it, because, sure, you know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, if you are smart enough to run your own business, then you're smart enough to save for your retirement. Of course, now, because the government has destroyed so many employment opportunities, there are a lot of people who are self-employed, who would rather be employed by somebody else, but the government has basically removed that option. But it's also interesting that according to the government, prices are barely rising. That's why the COLA increased by such a small amount. But the the the, way, the tax on uh, wages is supposedly a function of increasing wages. And supposedly, according to the government, wages are really growing but prices are barely rising. And none of that makes sense. In fact, I think the truth is the opposite. I think wages are barely rising. In fact, wages are probably falling and prices are really rising. Yet the government is pretending the opposite so they can have very small increases in the COLA, but huge increases in the amount of income subject to the Social Security tax. 
Wanted to get to some of the economic data that came out just yesterday, more weak economic data. Empire State Manufacturing Survey, unless you don't know, New York is the Empire State, and many people are kind of surprised that we manufacture anything in the state of New York, but we do. And the, the consensus was for a slight increase of one. We had a drop last month of 1.99, so call it two per two point drop in the uh, September month. And they were looking for a 1% rise for October, or one point rise, rather not a percent. And instead of the increase that they were expecting, we got an even bigger drop than the prior month. We were down 6.8. So weak economic number, weak manufacturing number, you know, just uh, par for the course, right? This is what we've been getting. Look at industrial production also came out. This is for September. The prior month was minus 0.4. They were looking for a bounce back of plus 0.2. Instead, we revised last month from down 0.4 to down 0.5. And now instead of rising 0.2 from minus 0.4, we rose only 0.1 from a revised down 0.5. So worse than expected on capacity utilization. We did uh, improve slightly from last month only because we revised last month down. The original report for the prior month was 75.5% capacity utilization, and they were expecting an increase to 75.6. Instead, we revised last month down to 75.3, and this month came in at 75.4, which was below the 75.6 that was expected. But you can say it was a little bit better than the prior month, only because we made the prior month worse. If you look at the original uh, number for the prior month, The actual this month represents a decline from that month. It already was weak at 75.5. So all these numbers, industrial production, uh, empire state manufacturing, are further evidence of an economy that is continuously in decline. We're going to get more evidence, I believe, of that decline later in the week. And I do believe that, once again, the Atlanta Fed is going to take down its estimate for Q3 GDP. I mean, ever so slightly, it's been notching it down. But pretty much every time it releases a new estimate— it is a little bit lower uh, than the previous estimate. Also, look at the news that came out of Ford. They announced that they're going to be shutting four of their factories. The reason for this is that they have had an inventory glut, right? All these cars are building up that they can't sell as sales are falling. And I've been talking on this podcast for a while about the bubble in auto sales, about the subprime auto lending bubble, about all of the delinquencies now in these subprime auto loans building up, hitting new highs. This is the tip of a major, major bubble. Part of this whole phony recovery has been all the goosed auto sales, you know, so President Obama can claim credit for the success associated with having bailed out the automobile industry. I think he just set it up for an even bigger failure down the line. I guess this is going to be something that Hillary Clinton is going to have to deal with when she's president, when these companies go bankrupt again. And is the government going to be bailing them out again? The question is, with what money? You know, where's that money going to come from? Because I don't think this time around, the next crisis, we're going to be able to do any bailouts, not unless we want to completely destroy the value of the dollar and make it worthless, turn it into monopoly money. Because ultimately, if the government wants to prevent the currency from becoming worthless, uh, they're going to have to start tightening up on credit and raising interest rates. And that means there's no money to bail out anybody. No money to bail out the automobile industry, no money to bail out the banks, no money to bail out the depositors, and no money to bail out the government itself.
Now, tomorrow we are going to have the third and final presidential debate. And pretty much everybody thinks the election is a foregone conclusion, right, that the most recent polls, uh, Trump has collapsed and it's pretty much uh, Hillary's got this thing in the bag. And and clearly, based on the polls, you know, that's what's going to happen. Although you never know, I still think that there is an element where people are reluctant to publicly admit that they're going to vote for Trump. Uh, because in a way, it may be embarrassing to admit that you're uh, voting for Trump based on a lot of the the information that has come out to the smear campaign recently. And if you remember the Brexit polls, I mean, everybody was so convinced that they were going to vote against Brexit. All the polls show Brexit uh, failing, uh, yet Brexit won. And it won, you know, it didn't just squeak by. It had a comfortable margin. So polls have been wrong, uh, and so they could be wrong again, although presidential polls don't have a history of being wrong. But, you know, anything can go. Anything can happen in this era. So I don't say that it is 100 percent certainty that that Hillary is going to win. But obviously, if I were a betting man, I was going to bet on the outcome. I think I think that it's more than even money that Hillary is going to win at this point. But, you know, we'll see what happens in the debate tomorrow. But, you know, the media continues to hammer Donald Trump on these controversies regarding Uh, His attitudes towards women, all of it began, of course, with the release of that hot mic audio with Donald Trump and and uh, Billy Bush. And I've already talked about that. But, you know, now they're talking about the Howard Stern show and, and the things that Donald Trump said when he was on the Howard Stern show. And apparently there's been some pressure on Howard Stern to release uh, some of these archived uh, radio shows. And even though Howard Stern is a supporter of Hillary Clinton, he is refusing to release the audio, saying that would be a betrayal to his guests. So, uh, you know, you got to respect Howard Stern for that, although a lot of this audio is already there. There's a lot of this stuff on the Internet and people are being very critical of Donald Trump. And the fact that he talked about sex on the Howard Stern show. I mean, come on. I mean, did they talk about anything other than sex on the Howard Stern show? I mean, I don't know if the people who are criticizing Donald Trump and the conversations he had with Howard Stern, have they ever listened to Howard Stern? I mean, not only do they talk about sex all the time on Howard Stern, I think they actually have sex live in the studio while the show is going on. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff about sex going on on the Howard Stern show. And so if you're going to go on the Howard Stern show, that topic is going to come up. Whether you bring it up or not, Howard's going to ask you about it. And, of course, when Donald Trump goes on the Howard Stern show, when he went on the Howard Stern show many times, why is he going on the Howard Stern show? Because Howard Stern has a huge audience, and he has a big audience of a particular demographic, young males, and Donald Trump has products that he wants to sell to young males. I mean, he wants young males to watch his pageants on television. He wants them to watch Miss USA. He wants them to watch Miss Universe. He also wants them to watch The Apprentice. He does have a line of clothing, men's clothing. He wants them to buy his clothes. So he is a marketer. He is a showman. And he is trying to push his products. And he needs to appeal to the designated market, which is the Howard Stern audience. And how do you reach the Howard Stern audience? Well, you you talk about sex, because that's pretty much all a lot of the people that listen to Howard Stern's think about. I mean, they're young guys. I mean, this is what young guys are interested in. Howard Stern rose to fame, even though Howard Stern is no longer a kid. uh, He rose to fame 
based on being sexually explicit and appealing to this particular market segment. And look, he's got this huge audience now on Sirius XM. He makes a lot of money because he's able to deliver this audience talking about sex. And and Donald Trump wants to tap into that audience for obvious reasons. And so he's on the show. I mean, when in Rome, right, when you're on Howard Stern, you're going to talk about sex. Now, would it be appropriate for a presidential candidate to go on the Howard Stern show? And, you know, and talk about whether or not he masturbates. No, but Donald Trump did not go on the Howard Stern show as a candidate for president. He went on representing his pageants or The Apprentice or his clothing company. And, you know, if he wanted to stoop down to the level of that audience in order to appeal to that audience and be entertaining and be interesting. Well, that's his prerogative. He's not doing it as a candidate for president. But the way somebody speaks as a private citizen, you know, versus a, a political figure, a potential president or a president, night and day. But what really bothers me is the way they want to rip stuff out of context and try to cast Trump in the worst possible light. Like one particular example is a conversation he had about his daughter. And of course, he has several daughters. And Howard Stern starts talking about. Uh, his daughter, Ivanka, and he starts talking about how pretty she is. And, of course, you know, Donald Trump, yes, beautiful girl. And and then Stern says, well, do you mind if I, you know, refer to her as a piece of ass? Now, I'm sure he's not happy about, oh, yeah, that's not the best way that he would refer to his daughter. But, hey, that's a compliment coming from Howard Stern. That's the level he's on, right? She's a piece of ass. All right, okay, yeah, I wouldn't choose that word, but, okay, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I know you meant it in a good way, right? He's just, yeah, okay, fine. They made a big deal like, oh, yeah, Donald Trump is okay with Howard Stern calling his daughter a piece of ass. What is he supposed to do? Start a fist fight with him? Defend his daughter's honor? He knows he's joking around. But then, you know, they start talking about her, and Howard Stern says, well, did she have any breast implants? And then— He says, no, she didn't have any. She's just always been voluptuous. She's a natural girl. They're acting like, well, he's having this conversation about his daughter's breasts. No, he's not. Howard Stern says, hey, did your daughter have breast implants? What's he supposed to say? I mean, he knows she didn't have them, so correct him. No, she's natural. She's not fake. She didn't didn't have these things. But he admits that she's a beautiful girl. But if you listen to this conversation, Donald Trump quickly steers the conversation away from his daughter being beautiful. And look, she's beautiful. Look at her objectively. She's a very attractive woman. And, you know, Trump, let Trump be proud of that. She's an attractive woman. But he then starts to talk about her intelligence, how smart she is, right? That she that she went uh, to the Wharton School of Business. And he starts talking about how she's doing well in business. And you can hear in his voice, that's really the pride. Yes, he's glad she's pretty. But he's more proud of her intellectually. He's proud of the woman that she is on the inside and how smart she is and how she's succeeding in business. And none of this is written about or talked about. But if you listen to it, that's what Donald Trump wanted to talk about. Howard Stern wants to talk about her breasts, but Donald Trump wants to talk about her mind. But he is cognizant of the audience. He's having fun. He's on the Howard Stern show and, you know, he wants to get invited back again. It's free publicity. He can publicize his stuff. So go listen to that interview. He is a proud father and he's proud of a lot more than the fact that his daughter doesn't have breast implants. Then here's another conversation, another perfect example of where Trump did nothing wrong and the media wants to vilify him. So in a conversation, uh, Howard Stern is asking Donald Trump about dating younger women. And of course, you know, 
you date younger women. I mean, that's a lot of guys date younger women, certainly if you're wealthier and you're famous. Um, look at Sean Penn. Sean Penn's what, 56, 57? I just read an article. His new girlfriend is 24. I mean, you've got Hollywood. You know, it, it, w- it would be so hypocritical for anyone in Hollywood to criticize Donald Trump for his pension for younger women. When look at what's going on in Hollywood, where 20, 30 year old gaps between uh, the women and the men are very, very, very common. So they're talking about the fact that he likes younger women. And, you know, and so they're talking about how old. And so Donald Trump ends up saying 30 is the perfect age. 30 is the perfect age for women. And, and then he says, and, but when they're 35, it's time to check out. Now, somehow, this is being interpreted as this is a bad thing for Donald Trump. Like, oh, he's, re, you know, women over 35, you know, you got to dump them. You know, that, that somehow this comment about 30 being the perfect age and 35 being checkout time, that this is somehow makes him a bad person, the way he looks at women. Not at all. Think about this conversation. He said, what's the perfect age for you? If, if for a guy, an older guy like you going out for younger women, I mean, what age? 30 is the perfect age. Why is 30 the perfect age? Because when a woman is 30, right, she's still youthful. She's still very young. In fact, a lot of women, when they're 30, are prettier than when they're 20. They mature. Their features uh, mature. They don't have as much maybe baby fat in their face. So they're still very beautiful and very youthful. But they're not kids anymore. They're out of college, right? They have a career, they got stuff going on. They have life experiences. They have relationships experiences. They kind of, they, they've grown into their own woman. They know what they want. They're more independent. I can see that a guy like Donald Trump, who's looking for a younger woman to date, right? This is not about marriage. It's about dating. He's talking about dating. That obviously 30, you know, he doesn't want to date someone 20, 22, 24. 30 is the perfect age. Now he says, well, 35, that's time to check out. Now, why would he say that? Well, here's the deal. When women are 35 and they're still single, they want to get married. They want kids. They have a biological clock that is suddenly ticking very loud. Now, they're talking about older guys dating younger women and what's the perfect age. Well, 30, because when a woman is 30, that biological clock doesn't tick so loud. I mean, hey, you know, it's when they kind of get up to about 35 that they really start to to really think about, I got to get married. And so what is Trump saying? Hey, I can date them when they're 30 to 35, but then I got to check out because I just want to date. I don't want to get married. And if Donald Trump basically will break something off with a woman who's 35 when he's just dating because he doesn't want to get married, that is good for the woman. I mean, what is he supposed to do? Just lead her on? Just pretend that he's interested in maybe going all the way with this relationship and putting a ring on her finger and, and, and fathering her children? Should he pretend that just so he can keep having fun with her? Or should he be a gentleman and basically bow out of her relationship so that she can find somebody more appropriate, somebody who is interested in marriage and is interested in children? When a woman is only 30 and that kind of stuff is further away, okay, that she can have some fun with Donald Trump. But I think it's a gentleman of Donald Trump to say, look, when it's 35, okay, you know, I can't, I'm not going to take a 35-year-old woman and have her waste her time with a relationship with me when I know she wants to get married and have kids. That's what I think Donald Trump was referring to. It's not like 35 is too old. I mean, come on. I mean, look how gorgeous Melania is. She's 46, 47. She's beautiful. I mean, you could be plenty of beautiful 35, 40-year-old women. That's not what Donald Trump was talking about. Clearly, a woman who's 40 years old is not too unattractive for Donald Trump to date. 
by a long shot. But what I think he's referring to is the fact that that's when they get to the point where they really want to get married and they want to have kids. And if you're just trying to have a good time and try to date, then you got to check out at 35 because, you know, it's not going to work. Now, maybe you, you're talking about exceptions. Oh, let's say the woman is 35 and she's divorced and has a few kids and doesn't want to get married again. OK, that's a different situation. But maybe Donald Trump is talking about dating women that don't have kids. Right. If you're just trying to have fun, you're trying to date, you want to go out with a young woman. If she has children, that's going to be an inconvenience. So generally, you're talking about a single woman with no kids. OK, she's probably not married. She wants to get married in most cases. She wants to have kids. That's what I think that they were talking about. But they're trying to vilify him as if somehow he's age sexist or he's, you know, see, he doesn't value women when they get older. He only cares about young. No, that's not what he was talking about. Not at all. But they just want to take all this stuff and try to make Donald Trump seem as bad a person as possible. Like, look at look at the, the conversation about the Miss Universe pageant. Because they had some woman that came out of the blue, one of the contestants. Like, can you imagine how many contestants there are in Miss Universe pageant? I mean, they have the pageant every year, and there's so many people there, right? The whole universe. Um, and they got one person to come out to say that, yeah, one time I was there, and I was, you know, changing backstage, and Donald Trump came in, and I was changing, and I— I was really uncomfortable about it, and I, I, you know, she didn't didn't like it because he was talking about the Miss Universe pageant on one of these uh, Howard Stern shows, and obviously he's trying to get the Howard Stern audience to watch the show because they want to have bigger Nielsen ratings because they're they they sell advertisements. That's how they make money in television, right? They they sell ads, so they want eyeballs. So he's on the show, hoping that. Howard Stern's large audience will tune in to see all the beautiful women. And he's talking about how beautiful these women are. And he's talking about how, you know, sometimes, you know, the most beautiful women aren't even the winners. I mean, there's just so many nice women there and you can look at them all. And and the subject comes up about, you know, behind the scenes and when they're changing. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm the owner of the pageant. And so, you know, I get to go backstage. And, you know, it's nice because I'm backstage and some of these women are changing and they're very pretty. Right. And that's obviously I can see all the Howard Stern's audience. I mean, this is like their fantasy to be able to, uh, you know, substitute places for be able to go backstage at the Miss Universe pageant. And, and somehow now these being portrayed as this big pervert. You know, and he's like, you know, intimidating all these girls and these poor girls and these pageants. And now there's here's Donald Trump coming in there, this little pervert ogling all the women. I mean, give me a break. I mean, first of all, you know, you talk about women that are in pageants and these women have been in lots of pageants. You, this is when you're in Miss Universe. This isn't your first pageant. I mean, first of all, you had to win a big pageant right in America. You had to win Miss USA. But before you miss USA, you're miss some other town. Right. I mean, these girls started these pageants since they're very, very young. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure behind the, you know, the scenes, behind the curtain and dressing room, they have to change swimsuits, evening gowns, whatever they're doing. But in, you know, you got models, they do run race shows. I mean, they keep coming out in different outfits. They got to keep changing behind the scenes. I mean, you're an actress, you got wardrobe change and you're back there and you're changing in and out of stuff. And there are camera people there. There's lighting, there's makeup, there's guys walking around. I mean, this is the industry. Women in this industry are used to being in their underwear or maybe being semi-nude and having some guy walk through, you know, <laughs> this is no big deal. This is, this is the pageant world. This is Hollywood. This is show business, theater, fashion. This is the world that he, he's in. And somehow they're trying to turn him into some kind of pervert, you know, running loose at the uh, Miss Universe. But all of this is part of the media trying to redefine um, Donald Trump as this horrible, sexist, misogynist, womanizer, rapist, assaulter 
so that nobody thinks about the economy when they actually go in to cast their vote. And, you know, even his wife was out there talking about this and putting it in perspective. And, you know, I mean, and, and she says, look, you know, in many cases, she said she feels like she has two boys at home. She ha- they have their 10-year-old son, Barron, and a 70-year-old husband, Donald Trump, who in many cases acts very boyishly. And maybe Billy Bush was bringing out the little boy in him, or certainly you go on a Howard Stern show. But just because you act like a boy sometimes and, and, and say things that are inappropriate uh, with your buddies uh, or on a Howard Stern show, that doesn't define you as a man. It doesn't define you as a human being, as a father, as a husband, as a potential president. But the, the media doesn't want any of this to come out. They just want to bury Trump. And again, it's not that I'm this adamant Trump supporter. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I, I very much dislike Hillary. And I know there are a lot of people that are just voting Trump because they, they, they want to vote against Hillary. I mean, I mean, it would be more than that for me if I voted Trump. But again, he's still my second choice. I still prefer Gary Johnson. And it's not that Gary Johnson's perfect either. Far from it. I mean, it's, it's always triage, right? It's, you know, which candidate is the least objectionable. And I generally find less to object about in Gary Johnson than even in Donald Trump. But I think Hillary Clinton is the most objectionable. Uh, objection for many, many reasons. But the media doesn't care about all that. But I'm not I'm my defense of Trump is not that I'm defending. Hey, this is you know, he's a Boy Scout and, and, and he's and he's the perfect example of what men should be in their relationships to women. No, I'm not saying that at all. But the media has gone so over the top the other way in in spinning this narrative. And when you look at the emails, particularly these Podesta emails that were released about Hillary Clinton, you see to the extent to which the Clinton campaign and the media are working together. And this is not a conspiracy. This is nothing official. The media is liberal. I mean, there's there's no hiding that fact. Everybody admits it. All these guys want Hillary Clinton. And so their objectivism has gone out the window. And they feel some kind of sense of patriotic duty to help elect Hillary Clinton. So it's not like, you know, there's a deal uh, to do this. It's just how it evolves. And yes, you know, they coordinate and, and, and reporters are much nicer to the Clinton campaign. And they, when they report something, they want to make sure and get the quote accurately if they think it's a good quote or they want to, uh, hey, which line do you want us to use or how do you want us to do this story? You know, whereas when they're writing a story about Donald Trump, they want to try to figure out the worst possible way to spin it. How can we report this to make it uh, the most negative about Donald Trump. I mean, that's just the way it is. And, you know, when Donald Trump is out there talking about, you know, the election is rigged, the election is fixed, I think that's really what he means. Not that, you know, the votes are being counted inaccurately, not that, you know, there's ballot stuffing or dead people voting, not that that doesn't happen, you know, on the margin some places, I'm sure that it does. But by and large, the election itself will be fair and that, you know, they're going to count the votes fairly. What's unfair is the media bias and the way that bias lends itself to reporting what is supposedly news, because so many voters base their decision on who to vote for based on the coverage. And and so if the coverage is slanted in favor of one candidate, Hillary Clinton, then in that way you could say it's rigged, it's fixed, because you're, it's not fair. I mean, obviously, who has a bigger... Uh, a beef. It'd be Gary Johnson or even Jill Stein. I mean, look how rigged it is against them. They're not even in the debates. 
I mean, so certainly Gary Johnson should be saying, hey, the election is rigged. But, I mean, because I mean, how could it not be? I mean, he's he's at what, nine percent in the polls among independents. I think he's around 12 or 13 percent of independents. So why why isn't he there? I think he's well over 15 percent of the youth vote. So there's a huge consistency that would like that already likes Gary Johnson. Can you imagine how many more votes he would get if he was in the debate? And of course, if he was in the debate for an hour and a half, assuming he got through the debate without a big Aleppo moment, he had a good debate. You know how many people would all of a sudden want to vote for him? He would be so much higher than 15% because you have so many people that are only voting for Trump to stop Hillary. And you have so many people who are only voting for Hillary to stop Trump. Don't you think some of those people might like Gary Johnson and then vote for him instead of against one of the other two? So he should certainly be able to talk about the election being rigged. I don't think he is. But somehow when Donald Trump talks about it, now it's being spun that, look, he, this is terrible. He's suggesting that we, you know, that just that the economy, we, he's, he's undermined the legitimacy of the process. And now we're thinking about riots, just like, you know, when he joked about Hillary Clinton going to jail, all of a sudden he's Adolf Hitler because he wants to jail his political opponents uh, when he didn't say anything like that. He just said he would appoint a special prosecutor. The only time he said he did say you'd be in jail kind of jokingly when she talked about, well, you know, about why she wants to be president, because the 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 joke was, well, yes, if I'm president, I'm going to appoint this independent prosecutor and that independent prosecutor might prosecute you and a jury might convict you. But at no point did he say that he's just going to grab her and throw her in a gulag, you know, like it was the Soviet Union or something. But that's how the media spins it. Anyway, we'll see what the debate is like on uh, on Wednesday night on Fox News. And I'm sure I will have some comments on that debate in a future podcast. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts, these are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. 
This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.